Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome, a very warm welcome to this, the first of this year's Conan Doyle lecture series. Uh, the topic tonight is mind-bending, the curious tale of psychotropic drugs, and our lecturer is Professor David Owens, standing here. I'm delighted that just as many as this have come tonight when it's so very, very wet, but this is, of course, a topic that interests almost everybody. And I think there might be just one or two people in the audience that have no experience at all of any mind-bending substance of any kind. <laughs> Would that not be the case? I think so. I think so. Now, you'll probably be aware that this lecture series is named the Conan Doyle Lectures because Conan Doyle, the creator of Sherlock Holmes, was a medical student in this very place. And it is said that he devised Sherlock Holmes on the basis to some extent of the character traits of his teachers and also on the basis of the idea that he saw them fitting together bits of evidence, little threads of you know, evidence and clues to solve medical issues. And this is where he got the idea of detection from. Now, you'll see that in this particular topic, it's not so much seeing the clues, it's realizing what the significance of them could possibly have been. But Professor Owens can tell you about that much better than I ever will, so I'll hand over to him now. David. Thank you very much, Professor Johnston. Sometimes it seems as if psychiatry, uh, sorry, society is under threat. As if the very, as psychiatry is as well, as if the very pillars of civilization are trembling. And the attack, of course, comes from drugs. They seem to be everywhere. In fact, the situation is so bad that since 1970, America has been at war with drugs. But as any general will tell you, you should be careful on whom you declare war. For the fact that certain substances can alter human experience probably ranks with fire as one of man's oldest and most abiding discoveries. Take the poppy, for example, going back to earliest times, right through the very foundations of civilization in southern Mesopotamia, who can deny the role that opium played in the development of human thought, at least insofar as Eastern Mediterranean religion is concerned, and also to some extent in human medicine. Indeed, for the Sumerians, the word for poppy was the same, opium was the same as the word for joy and rejoicing. Not everyone in antiquity, however, had quite such a positive view of the poppy. Hippocrates of Kos, the towering figure of classical Greek medicine, in the oath that many medical students till still take to this day before they start their career, urged people to be very cautious about using a deadly drug, and he was referring to opium. Not that his Roman counterpart, Galen, a few hundred years ago, had, a few hundred years later, had quite such reservations, and he used opium liberally, not least with his most distinguished patient, the Roman emperor Marcus Aurelius. All those mystical, philosophical meditations filtered, at least to some extent, through the dreamy state of opium. We can then play quite a fun parlor game on the number of people in the 18th and 19th century who used, abused, or were frankly hooked on the substance. Um, Edinburgh even had its own. The writer 
Thomas de Quincey, buried in St. Cuthbert's churchyard. And the list is long indeed, and this is only a fraction. But we were fairly promiscuous as a species in our uh, enjoyment and relationships with drugs. Alcohol, of course, in both its recreational and its symbolic uses, requires a talk on its own, and we can't unfortunately go into that. But isn't it ironic that a drug we now consider to be one of the major public health problems of our time could take the prize of the major public health innovation in human development, added to water as it originally was, saving millions of people from waterborne infections. But what about cannabis? Well, traces of cannabinoids have been found in the cooking utensils of Neanderthals, would you believe, making them, no doubt, the original stoned age man. <laughs> and Queen Victoria, prudish Queen Victoria, was a regular user for her many gynecological problems. And when the British aristocracy got to Asia Minor on the Grand Tour, they were ever so pleased to return from an exhausting day in the archaeological sites to find in their tent a little cup of black, strong Turkish coffee and those dinky little marijuana biscuits, the original Turkish delight. And what can one say about hallucinogens? From the ergot fungus that regularly throughout history infected grain stores and produced episodes of what were called mass insanity, through to the ritual and recreational uses of magic mushrooms, even to some members of the Solanacea family, which include the humble potato and the tomato. Uh, hallucinogens have played a crucial role uh, in our species' evolution. And maybe God did send his fiery chariot to transport Elijah heavenwards. But I can tell you as someone who was old enough to practice psychiatry in Glasgow in the 1970s when LSD was a common substance of misuse, he sent many a fiery chariot to take off on the Govan Road and circulate in the clouds over Linthouse. And what on earth is going on with Santa Claus? Flying reindeer, little tiny elves, time distortion going round the world in a night. Well, it's well known <clears throat> that Silas Ivan the active component of the Amanita mushroom can have its ex effects extended by repeated passage through the body, something our ancestors realized could be achieved by drinking their own urine. Some people think the origin of the expression to get pissed. <laughs> and cocaine, <clears throat> now so reviled in the United States, but the drug which arguably fueled that country's industrialization, being liberally given as it was in the 19th, late 19th century to factory workers to increase their productivity. And God save us, we may even have to thank cocaine for at least some of psychoanalysis, for Sigmund Freud, during his most productive years, was a regular user. And even the inspiration behind our current uh, lecture series, Conan Doyle, felt it was useful to add cocaine, injectable cocaine you use, as a character development in his most famous creation. So our love affair with mind-altering substances has been long and profound. Not, of course, that everybody in society necessarily had access to all these compounds. Responsibility and expertise tended to be focused in just a few people uh, in each of these societies. We tend to know them nowadays by their northern Asiatic pet, uh, name as shaman. And of course, they're still with us. But when it comes to access to psychotropic compounds, the shaman have moved 
most definitely into the surgery. And doctors now at their have at their disposal a vast array of compounds which can, in effect, alter human experience, hopefully in most instances for the better. So how did we get from this to this? That's the story I want to try and unravel with you today. And I have to advise you, it's much more history than science, but sometimes history can be informative. There were attempts throughout the 19th century to introduce psychotropic property compounds into psychiatric practice. Um, uh, bromide salts, for example, were widely used right into the 20th century as sleeping drafts, as they were known, and anti-anxiety preparations. And by the end of the 19th century, uh, sedatives like peraldehyde and chlorohydrate were being widely used. Not just in hospitals, I have to say, if you had inadvertently wandered into a certain bar in the south side of Chicago in the early years of the 20th century, you might have got more than you bargained if the owner, a certain Mr. Mickey Finn, added chloral to your drink, not to date rape you, but to simply rob you, uh, thereby obtaining a degree of dubious immortality. Slipping somebody a Mickey Finn is still an expression that's used today. And while it might be said that the British Empire was built on the arms of its military, there can be little doubt that it was sustained on the corsetry and laudanum of its military wives. Laudanum is tincture of opium, opium dissolved in, uh, in alcohol and was widely used in Victorian times. And if you were a bit concerned that your spouse might be coming a bit too fond of a daily swig of uh, laudanum, then that nice German company Bayer in 1898 produced a non-addictive form of opium, which they called heroin. <laughs> well, we all make mistakes. But none of this really amounted to a psychopharmacology. And you can see that the term psychopharmacology is really very recent indeed. In fact, in terms of our long and promiscuous love affair with uh, psychoactive compounds, psychopharmacology is barely an infant. In fact, it's really an ovum, to be perfectly frank. Some would say that if we're looking for the origins of this discipline, we could do worse than look to Jacques-Joseph Moreau. For he was certainly one of the first to systematically study the effects of a psychotropic compound on human beings. Unfortunately, he chose cannabis to study, um, although his preoccupation was most definitely not our present one. He believed in the therapeutic powers of this, and the report, the textbook that he wrote on this subject, would have been on many a doctor's shelf in the late 19th century. But we can't really use this as the origins of psychopharmacology because, quite simply, the subject is so muddy. Following one of the most successful, some might say infamous, public information uh, programs in the United States in the 20s and 30s, it's really not possible even today to talk about cannabis in an objective way. Cannabis is very much the subject of the tabloid headline writers rather than the editors of scientific journals. And anybody who steps out of line knows what to expect, as my old mate David Nutt discovered only a couple of years ago. No, if we want to seek out the origins of psychopharmacology, it's to specifically antipsychotics we should look to start with, because their roots are longest and most tortuous, and because these drugs led on to other things. And it is probably to this man that we must look. You probably don't know who he is, 
but he changed the world. If you were to use your time machine to go back to the world before the middle of the 19th century, you would notice many differences, of course, but I guarantee one difference that would strike you pretty quickly was that then was, for most people, a world largely devoid of color. What, what dyes were available tended to be expensive, they were vegetable-based, and they faded in sunlight. Those with vividness were incredibly expensive. Now, many of you ladies may have cochineal in your cupboard and your baking cupboard to use in, as a dye in baking, but in the days when cochineal was a fabric dye, it was horrendously expensive. It took, it's made from the ground wing guards of the cochineal cactus beetle, and it takes some 50,000 of these little critters to be sacrificed to produce one ounce of dyeing quality cochineal. The world pre the 1850s was not the world of the costume drama. All of that changed when in 1856, William Perkin determined to make his mark. He was looking, he was excited by the recently discovered coal tar. Not any exciting substance to us, but in the 1850s, it was red hot stuff. And Perkin determined, setting up a chemistry set in his parents' home, to go for the top. He aimed to make quinine, the treatment for malaria, from the aniline of um, uh, coal tar. Now, being only 18 years of age, his um, chemistry expertise was not as great as his confidence in himself, and actually all he managed to create was a sticky splurge. When he dissolved his sticky splurge in alcohol, he discovered what's in his hand, mauve. As you'll see throughout our talk, it's not just enough to make a discovery. It's important to find an angle, to appreciate an application. And although he was only 18 years of age, Perkin found an application immediately because his mauve dyed fabric. Within a few short years, Perkin's purple was the fashion statement. In fact, they even minted a one-shilling mauve stamp in celebration of his achievement. The Perkin effect was twofold. Firstly, he more or less single-handedly invented the commercial dye industry. And on the back of that, this new discipline of organic chemistry to service the commercial demand. This link-up between academia on the one hand and commercialism on the other worked nowhere better than in Germany. And in the 1870s, the Badisch Soda, Aniline und Soda Fabrik, BASF, still around to this day, synthesized a particularly commercially successful dye. It was called Methylene Blue, and we can see why it was so successful. The chief chemist behind this project wanted to know what the chemical structure was at the core of methylene blue so that he could develop new compounds. He handed this task to a young graduate student called August Bernstein, and he came up with the results in double quick time. He saw that at the core of methylene blue was a molecule that he called thiodiphenylamine, or what we nowadays call phenol. And there's an irony in this story, ladies and gentlemen, because August Bernstein was working in Heidelberg, only a few kilometers and a few brief years away from where Emil Kraepelin 
would put together his notion of dementia precox, what we now call schizophrenia. Yet it was almost three quarters of a century before these two great ideas were brought to conjunction. Years during which psychiatry was dragged through innumerable therapeutic, uh, sorry, uh, theoretical quagmires and up countless therapeutic blind alleys. Nobody got the angle. There was a third spin-off, however, from Perkins' discovery, and that was the application of these new complex molecules to medical practice. And one man who was particularly in advance and adept at this uh, with methylene blue was Paul Ehrlich, because he began to use the dye to dye, or what we call stain, body tissues. This is a crucial process in being able to identify different types of cell in both health and disease. And it was particularly valuable in hematology, where down a light microscope, most cells look much the same. And for this reason, because of the dyes that he introduced in hematology, um, Ehrlich is still known to this day as the father of that discipline. When he was looking at the red blood cells of people with malaria, he noticed that his dye stained not just the cell, but the parasite inside the cell. So he made an obvious uh, leap of, the, uh, of thinking. He said, well, if we give people methylene blue, perhaps we can treat malaria. And in fact, that proved to be the case. Methylene blue was not, however, a very effective treatment of malaria. It tended to come back after people were treated, and it wasn't a well-tolerated compound, not least because of its alarming tendency to turn the whites of the eyes blue and the urine green. So although methylene blue was used as an anti-malarial treatment into the 20th century, it was never really very successful. In fact, by the 1930s, the only commercially successful use of phenothiazine molecules was in veterinary medicine, in the worming of pigs, which are particularly prone to large round one infection, which can clog up the bowel. I don't think we'll continue with this. It's quite a disgusting slide, really, isn't it? Which brings us to the war. However, before we see the crucial impact that the Second World War had on this and other topics that we're going to raise, we need to go back and look at two at, uh, other areas of research that at the time did not seem relevant, but were to prove crucial. These are the nature of shock and the physiology of neurotransmission. That is the mechanism by which nerve cells communicate. In 1910, Henry later, Sir Henry Dale, noticed that patients who developed anaphylactic or allergic shock seemed to have all the symptoms associated with poisoning with a common amine in the body called histamine. And subsequently, it was shown that anaphylactic shock is indeed due to the body's excessive release of histamine. Then in 1914, he identified another amine in the body, acetylcholine, and suggested that this may be crucial in the way that nerve cells interact with one another. This was one of the great arguments of the time, whether nerve cells related to one another electrically or chemically. The point was proven beyond doubt by a colleague and friend of Dale, Otto Louis, with whom, in 1936, Dale shared the Nobel Prize. Around this time in the late 30s, a young Swiss pharmacologist called Daniel Bove had one of these thoughts that, in retrospect, looked so simple, you think, I could have thought that, but somehow it's only one or two people that have thoughts like that. He said, well, if there is this naturally occurring amine in the body, 
called acetylcholine, and there are anticholinergic drugs which can block it. And I mentioned earlier about the ergot fungus, which can regularly, or regularly in the past, affected grain supplies and caused outbreaks of insanity. This is how the fungi works. They produce anticholinergic substances which interfere with nerve transmission. So Bovey said, if this is the case with acetylcholine, why is it not the case uh, with that other common amine in the body, histamine? Can there not be artificial or natural antihistaminic properties? For slightly more than that, uh, Bovey also received the Nobel Prize in 1957. Now, this idea of antihistamines uh, Bovey was working, incidentally, at the Institute Pasteur in Paris. And this idea was, interest, it was of interest to the French state-owned pharmaceutical company, Rhone Poulon, also based in Paris. And they began a program to develop synthetic antihistamines. And they developed a particularly commercially successful drug out of that, diphenhydramine, the drug that to this day remains the reference uh, antihistamine compound. And you'll have heard of it. It's in every pharmacist's shelf in the land. Uh, Benadryl, you may even have taken it yourself. And there, at the core of the compound, is our modified phenothiazine ring. Which brings us back to the war. It's a sobering fact, ladies and gentlemen, that in the history of warfare, more combatants have been felled by malaria than by battlefield trauma. In fact, as the historian A.M. Bell recently put it, the history of malaria and war might always, almost be taken to be the history of warfare itself. Another little game we can play is how many famous people's death from malaria has changed history. The next time you watch The King and I, when Yul Brynner passes out gracefully on the settee, it was from malaria he died. And there are many campaigns we can cite that were decisively influenced by outbreaks of malaria. We could argue, for example, that Britain lost its North American colonies less because of the generalship of George Washington and more because of the bloodthirstiness of the mosquitoes of Yorktown. Hence, the interest that military men have in all things malarial. With the outbreak of the Second World War, however, both the United States and the Axis powers realized they had a problem with the supply of anti-malarial medication, and both set about trying to find a solution. In America, Henry Gilman began one of the most intensive investigations, starting off with the modified phenothiazine ring at the core of methylene blue he found no success whatsoever and published his negative results in 1944. Meanwhile, Rhone Poulenc had also been interested in this development and had begun their own process with the substituted phenothiazines to find more anti-malarials. But because of the war, they didn't know what was going on in America. And in fact, they said quite frankly subsequently that had they known, they would have stopped their program as well because they were getting nowhere either. However, they did produce one drug, promethazine, another drug that you may well have heard of, Benergan, widely used again on every chemist's shelf. And there, once again, at the core of it, is a substituted phenothiazine molecule. However, what the French noticed was something that the Americans had missed. Because of their interest in antihistamines, they noticed that the substituted phenothiazines as a group seemed to have antihistamine properties which brings us back 
a shock. I mentioned anaphylactic shock, but there's another type of shock, hemodynamic or circulatory shock. And the Second World War had proved the truth of the old adage that the operation was a success, but the patient died. Unfortunately, advances in pre-anesthetic and anesthetic techniques had not kept up with advances in surgical technique, and all too many patients still died of circulatory or hemodynamic shock. Enter Henri Labarry. Labarry would have been surprised at the beginning of his career to know that by the end of it, his major contribution would have been in psychiatry because he was not a psychiatrist. He was, in fact, a naval surgeon. He began his research career in a topic of interest to navies around the world, seasickness, which he thought might be due to an abnormality of this chemical transmitter, acetylcholine, and its metabolism. When, however, in 1946, it was suggested that this may also underline the basis of hemodynamic or circulatory shock, he was well-placed to shift emphasis. Now, we now know this is nonsense. Shock is a complex metabolic process which results in increased permeability right at the bottom of the vascular tree at the capillary level. But nonetheless, uh, Labory and many others believed that the problem was an autonomic or automatic nervous system problem. And he began to put together what he called uh, a lytic cocktail of drugs to dampen down the overactivity of the autonomic nervous system. Lytic just meaning knocking out the, the, the nervous system and thereby hopefully re reducing the risk of hemodynamic shock and increasing the uh, post-operative outcomes. And with the development of promethazine, he almost immediately introduced it into his lytic cocktail. Now, this adherence to this theory was to seriously damage Labarie's uh, credibility with his own, with surgeons and anaesthetists. Um, but nonetheless, he uh, illustrated from the use of this cocktail his quite remarkable powers of clinical observation. Because the psychiatrists had been given promethazine and they had noticed only sedation. Labarie noted something different. He noticed that the patient certainly became calm and sleepy but that they appeared strikingly detached emotionally from their surroundings. And he thought this was unique and clearly distinguishable from other sedative drugs. What, in effect, he was identifying was the emotional or affective bubble that these drugs appeared to produce around people facing very worrying and threatening circumstances. He wanted more and he pressed for more, though what role this played in the, in the development of or, or what happened later was a subject of much controversy later on. But certainly, everyone at Rhone Poulenc could realize that the drugs that they had were unusual. They were antihistaminic, some of them were also anticholinergic, and they were, sedated. they were sedating, which meant they clearly got into the brain. But furthermore, one or two of them actually seemed to activate people who had Parkinson's disease. These were unusual compounds. In 1950, Pierre Cucci wrote a memo to the board of Ron Poulenc suggesting an aminophenothiazine development program. And it's a fascinating memo to read because basically he hadn't a clue where it was going. It was difficult to know what the applications were, perhaps because of Labarie's insistence he recommended that there might be a role in pre-anesthesia. He himself certainly hoped for new treatments for Parkinson's disease, but right at the end, he speculated on an application in psychiatry 
nothing more. Never can so much have arisen out of such unpromising beginnings. And things happened very fast indeed. In a little over two months, Paul Charpentier had synthesized what he originally called chloropromazine, um, an Irish variant of the drug, and it was handed over for pharmacological assessment uh, to Simon Courvoisier, who noted that this compound had a large number of actions. And for doctors, nurses, and patients ever since, the branded version of chlorpromazine has been known as Largactyl. It didn't, however, seem to go that well to begin with. Although Blavary had insisted that there would be a role in pre-anesthesia, he only received his samples well into the clinical uh, development program for reasons that to this day we don't know. And far from helping Parkinsonism, clopromazine actually seemed to cause it. And once again, the psychiatrists saw only sedation. Nonetheless, one Labory did get his hands on his samples, he was even more impressed with the effects that clopromazine had. It seemed to produce even more detachment and indifference than promethazine had done. And he began to see and began to believe passionately that the real home of this drug might be in psychiatry. Psychiatrists didn't want to know. It's important and almost impossible to imagine looking back just what the attitudes within psychiatry were at that time. The science of psychiatry was not seen to lie in drugs or neuroscience as we now know it. The science was seen in the ability to untangle the tangled threads that led to major psychiatric disorder, usually using means such as psychoanalysis to do so. Drugs were out. Labory didn't give up, however, and really because of his constant insistence, in early 1952, he persuaded colleagues, uh, psychiatric colleagues at the Val de Grasse Military Hospital to try this new chlorpromazine, though they did so in their own words, without much conviction. The patient was a 24-year-old manic lad called Jacques Lermitte, and rather than taking months to get well as he had before, he was restored to health in three weeks. When Hammond and his colleagues came to write up the article the following month, they noted at the end, naturally, we are not presenting a new therapy for treating mania. How they must have rued those words. As far as the history of psychiatry is concerned, credit usually goes to Jean Delay and Pierre Deniker. And that largely resides in the fact that they were famous at the time and the meeting they presented their results at were prestigious. Much was made of the fact subsequently that they didn't mention Labory, whose reputation seemed tarnished. However, it was to be restored to some extent by exploring another unique property of chlorpromazine, that is, its ability to lower the core body temperature. And the cocktail, the lytic cocktail of drugs, became a crucial part in the early days of cardiac surgery by lowering body temperature. And of course, artificial surgery, artificial hibernation rather, is now a, a very hot element in the field of neurosurgery. But if we want to pin down the precise day when the modern era of psychopharmacology began, we can do so when on the 28th of December 1951, Dr. Jean Sigwald prescribed solo chlorpromazine uh, therapy for a 57-year-old retired civil servant with a psychotic illness, the memorably named Madame Gob.
it would be hard to overemphasize the consequences of the introduction of chlorpromazine and its, uh, uh, its subsequent compounds. This laid the foundations for one of the greatest social movements in, uh, of the late 20th century. Don't forget that by the middle of the 20th century, some 150,000 people were incarcerated in long-term psychiatric care. We don't see that now. The long-term institutions, with all their deficits, have gone. For the first time, we could provide evidence that mental disorder could be, in some instances, brain disorder. And we were provided with the first tools for the very understanding of the human uh, functioning of the human brain itself. And we've been given a number of uh, understandings and hypotheses relating to schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and even in the last dec decade or so, addictions as well, as a result of what these drugs have given us. But you'll notice there's no Nobel Prize for chlorpromazine. Indeed, the whole story of chlorpromazine probably ranks as the major example in the 20th century of a medical advance that was never acknowledged by a Nobel committee. Probably because it's not just important to see an angle, it's important to agree who saw it and when. And unfortunately, that was something the French could never agree on. The impact was also enormous for the next group of compounds we want to consider, antidepressants. In fact, before the middle of the 20th century, depressive illness did not exist. Well, of course it did, but it didn't as far as doctors were concerned. Depression was the result of repressed, unresolved subconscious conflicts, and the way to treat them was with psychoanalysis, if you could afford it. If you couldn't, you could maybe have a few pick-me-ups or tonics. You could buzz around for 36 hours with your Benzedrine inhaler if you wanted. But there was no such a thing as a, a depressive illness. That was despite the fact that since the mid-1930s, we had had ECT. But of course, ECT was a treatment reserved only for brutal doctors who wanted to beat the sadness out of individuals who deserved more humane management. The fact that there was an illness there was not acknowledged. And then came the war. Now, going back to the 1870s, people had looked at the chemical properties of a compound called hydrazine. But hydrazine is highly volatile and difficult to work with, and nobody got very far. In 1912, as a purely academic PhD exercise, isonicotinyl hydrazine was synthesized in Prague, but it gathered dust on the, the shelf, just like the PhD did. When the Allies entered the ruins of Nazi Germany, however, they found large stockpiles of hydrazine that they didn't know what to do with. So they sold it off cheaply at bargain basement rates to the pharmaceutical and chemical industries, hoping they could make something of it. And why did the Nazi state have so much hydrazine in store? They used it to fuel the V2 rocket. In 1950, isonicotinyl hydrazine was once again synthesized and was shown to have remarkable anti-tuberculous properties. Now, isonicotinyl hydrazine cannot be used, not suitable for human use, but within a very short period of time, two pharmaceutical companies have produced variants that could be ipronized and isonized. 
1951, these drugs went into clinical trial in the famous Seaview studies in uh, the United States under the directorship of Irving Selikoff, who 10 years later was to establish the health dangers of asbestos. Seaview used to be America's leading tuberculosis hospital, and the fact that it's now an abandoned ruin speaks volumes and testament to the success of these studies. But something funny was happening, for many of the patients seemed very happy indeed. As one New York reporter described following a visit to the hospital, the patients were dancing in the halls, though there were holes in their lungs. For chest physicians, this was just a side effect. But one or two, literally one or two psychiatrists, thought this may be reflecting something much more fundamental. In 1957, Nathan Klein reported on the first use of Ipronizid as a an antidepressant drug in people who did not have tuberculosis, thereby starting the modern era of antidepressant treatment with the monoamine uh, oxidase inhibitors. And isn't it strange that the word antidepressant, now so much a part of our vernacular, was only coined the year previously, in 1956. And all because the Nazis wanted a super weapon. There was, however, another train of, thought, uh, of research going on at the same time, and it related to promethazine in the first instance and clopromazine subsequently. In 1948, the um, uh, Swiss pharmaceutical company, Siba Geige, um, developed a compound from uh, promethazine uh, that they didn't really know what to do with, but there is a substituted phenothiazine ring at the core. At this time, the two phenyl molecules are bridged by an ethylene bridge, but at the same time, it's basically chlorpromazine, an analog of chlorpromazine. Once chlorpromazine had circled the world, which it did within two years, many a pharmaceutical uh, company said, I'll have a bit of that action, thank you, and Siba Geige were no exception. And they were trying to develop this compound as a safer form of chlorpromazine, because in the early days, chlorpromazine was quite damaging to the liver, partly at least in cause, uh, because of uh, market, uh, manufacturing impurities. In 1955, Ronald Kuhn, the medical director of a psychiatric clinic in Switzerland, found his hospital rather short of funds. So he wrote to Siba Geige and asked if they had any antipsychotic compounds that they could give him to try out on his patients rather than that somewhat expensive chlorpromazine. Such was the medical ethics of research in the 1950s. Siba Geige said, well, it just so happens we've got this G22355, and Kuhn was sent some and tried it on some of his patients with schizophrenia with results that were described as in some patients quite disastrous. Many people got much worse indeed. But Kuhn spotted an angle. In three patients, only three patients, he noted a marked improvement and he thought these patients had been misdiagnosed. He, had, he thought they had what he called vital depression. So he redid another trial with more drug from Siba Geige in 40 patients with vital depression, which he presented at a meeting in 1957, the same year as Nathan Klein. However, it took another year to get this product on the go, and in 1958, relaunched as a mipramine, or tofranil, G22355 became the first of the tricyclic antidepressants. 
antidepressants have had a, a profound effect. And only for a few short years, they, they, they changed what was a, a, a psychological issue, only manageable for the, for the few with the money to do so, into one of the major medical diagnoses of the modern time. And tricyclics, because of their mode of action, are the basis of the way all subsequent antidepressants work. Even the newer SSRI drugs are just purifications on the same theme. And both monoamine oxidase inhibitors and tricyclics form the fundamentals, the basis of uh, the major hypothesis that we have for understanding mood disorders to this day. They have, of course, also raised fundamental social and ethical problems about what is happy unhappiness and what is depression that remain to be resolved, but their impact has been enormous. Mood stabilizers have also had an impact and are one of the more successful treatments uh, 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 in, in one aspect of mood disorder, that is maintaining well-being, especially in people who have bipolar affective disorder or manic depression as it used to be called. And the treatment that has proved successful in that regard is lithium. Now, lithium uh, is a commonly used commercial compound. It is mined in conjunction with table salt and as a result, all of us have minute traces of lithium in our body, but lithium itself is not known to participate in any body functions. It was one of those bromide drafts that was used in the 19th century, and it was singled out for medical use in the middle of the 20th century as a salt substitute in people with high blood pressure. But because toxicity was not appreciated, some people died and it got a bad reputation. John Cade would, I think, not have considered himself as a high-flying research psychiatrist. He was a jobbing psychiatrist working with the military, captured with the fall of Singapore, and, his, and spending the, the entire war years in Changi prison, which gave him much time to think. When he was there, he began to believe increasingly that major psychiatric disorders were caused by the accumulation of toxins in the body. Now, this was not a new idea. This went back to an idea in the 19th century called the urate diathesis, where people believed that because of abnormalities in protein metabolism, you built up excessive amounts of the major end product, uric acid, and that caused a whole range of conditions, including some psychiatric disorders. When he was released from captivity, Cade went back to a rather sleepy job in Victoria, but it did give him time to uh, um, uh, do research in laboratory animals. And he noticed that when he gave laboratory animals lithium urate, it increased their natural excretion of uric acid. So having tried it in himself, he gave it to 10 patients in a very small study with results that he described as dramatic. Now, in fact, the theory was frankly bunkum. The patients were inaccurately diagnosed, and some of the improvement in one or two patients that he noted was undoubtedly as they became sleepy, moving towards the coma of intoxication. And he published his results in a journal that at the time, almost nobody read. So it was amazing that his observations were reported at all. They were, however, taken up ironically in the home of the urate hypothesis in Denmark by Morgan Skow. And over the next 20 years, he and his colleagues in Oris refined lithium into one of the most effective and indeed, if properly managed, one of the safest treatments in psychiatry. 
And I suppose the moral of this story is that even if you've got an angle, it doesn't necessarily need to be, so to speak, a right angle. Which brings us to our final group of drugs, perhaps the ones that, to be frank, we should devote most attention to, because they illustrate many of the social and ethical issues that psychopharmacology raises, and indeed, many of the limitations. But because the subject is so large, we must restrict ourselves. Many substances have been used in the 19th century to try and bring about that degree of calm and equanimity that our species believes is our right to bring about tranquility. None of them were particularly successful. In the 1870s, Adolf Baer, who we've already seen working on hydrazine as well, combined the urea from urine with malonic acid from apple juice to create a new compound that he didn't know what to call it. He settled on barbituric acid. Now, there are several versions as to why he chose that name, but my favorite one is that it was called after, in his own words, a charming young lady called Barbara. Um, rumor has it that she was the uh, waitress who provided the urine sample, <laughs> though history does not record whether it was a morning specimen. You may be interested to know that uh, this is not the only drug called after a young lady. Uh, Methylphenidate, widely used in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is marketed as Ritalin. And Ritalin is called after Margarita or Rita, the wife of the chemist who synthesized it. So if you want immortality, ladies, marry a pharmaceutical chemist. <laughs> Barbituric acid is a pharmacologically inert compound, and it took till 1902 till Fischer and von Menning synthesized the first active uh, uh, member of what became a large wave of compounds, barbiton, or what the Americans call barbital. These became widely used and dominated medical practice in the first half of the 20th century, but these are difficult compounds to use. Amongst their many uh, problems is the fact that they have a very narrow therapeutic index. That is the space between the dose which gives you the effect you want and the dose which causes harm, maybe even fatality, is very, very narrow indeed. These are potentially dangerous compounds. So the search was on for compounds that could produce this state of relaxation that our species so values, but was safer to use. Enter the war. Now, I've mentioned uh, uh, that you have to, in this life, spot an angle. And unfortunately, uh, most Scots believe that Alexander Fleming discovered penicillin, but in fact he didn't. It had been known for some 40 years before he got in on the act. But what the angle he noted was the potential to use this as a therapeutic treatment. However, that remained a largely, uh, a largely theoretical uh, suggestion until the outbreak of war, when the need for this as a therapy became pressing. And that was uh, successfully achieved by Howard Florey and Ernst Chain, uh, with whom Fleming shared the Nobel Prize in 1945. However, if you're producing penicillin, it needs to be presented in a preservative to protect it from other bacteria which break down the penicillin itself. And that task was given to Frank Berger. And one particularly effective preservative, myanosin or mefenicin, he noted had very unusual characteristics in animal studies. First of all, it produced muscle relaxation. Now, the only relaxation that was known up until that time was paralysis, that caused by the South American 
dart poison curare. But this was something different. Furthermore, mefenazine um, made animals go to sleep, but not in the way of an anaesthetic. You could rouse them quite easily. And this intrigued uh, Frank Berger. After he moved to the United States, he and a colleague synthesized a variant based on this, model, this uh, molecule, which they called meprobamate, which was launched in 1955 as the first tranquilizer, a term Berger revived from the 19th century. Within two years, meprobamate had become the most prescribed drug in the United States, and incidentally, was the first drug to be detected in the water table of a civilized, developed country. Now, you can get Prozac in the water table of Scotland if you look hard enough. However, this was still a relatively dangerous drug, and it was possible to overdose and have very serious consequences. However, stimulated by this work, Leo Sternbach, working in uh, New Jersey, synthesized a compound called RO6690 that he didn't think much of. But the following year, his lab technician suggested that he had got a bit careless and hadn't looked at the compound properly, and maybe it deserved a closer look. And this he did and discovered it had the three main properties that he was looking for. Furthermore, it had an almost infinite therapeutic index. In 1960, RO6690 was marketed as Librium in the start of what was not a wave, but a tsunami of benzodiazepine drugs. However, these drugs illustrate two of the great problems with psychopharmacology. Firstly, that these drugs are not panaceas, and they force us to ask important questions about the nature of psychiatric treatment. But also, because actually what has happened over the last 30 to 40 years has been more derivative than most of us would like to think. All of this looks like great activity, but in fact, the golden age of the 1950s has started to look increasingly tinny. What we try to do with all of these compounds is to modify neurotransmission. That is, to influence the way that brain cells interact with one another. And fortunately, we don't need to go into this in too much detail, but essentially, of the compounds we have, we can alter the way that brain cells connect in the first cell, or we can alter the amount of transmitter in the space between the cells, or we can interfere with the way the transmitters work in the second cell all of which can translate into the clinical improvements that we wish. However, it's very clear that this is, in effect, dealing with downstream effects. And what we really should be trying to tackle are the fundamental causes of the major disorders we're trying to treat at the gene level, where they come from. Now, although uh, uh, psychiatric genes are being identified almost on a daily basis to be associated with major psychiatric disorder, it's clear that very few conditions are caused by single uh, gene abnormalities. And putting together the complex jigsaw puzzle uh, that is the genetics of major psychiatric disorder will be complicated. But where there is a single disorder, we can perhaps see a way forward. One such example is Fragile X syndrome, a not uncommon condition, clearly characterized in its molecular biology, and due to the absence of a particular protein essential for the intimacy and complexity with which brain cells interact. 
Some of you may have attended Peter Kine's lecture in uh, this series. Peter's in the audience today. I hope he's not listening to this part of my talk. Um, when he outlined the uh, uh, cutting-edge work in this field that has been done in Edinburgh. And because he's here, I won't go into it in any detail, but basically, uh, in the bottom part of the slide, you can see a nerve cell with its, its complex connections linking up with hundreds, if not thousands, of its neighbours. And the, the intimacy of these connections depending on nice, beefy, plump little connections which are facilitated by this protein, FMRP. However, when the protein is absent, the connections become languid and incompetent, and that results, as you can see in the top, in a whole series of clinical consequences. Now it is possible to replicate the functions of this missing protein uh, with uh, manufactured compounds. And uh, one of these compounds listed here, a great excitement, you may be reading in the press about it fairly soon, uh, uh, can help to restore the integrity of the relationship between these uh, brain cells which has been damaged without the protein. This is an example of what's called translational medicine, starting off with an idea which is genetically characterized, creating an animal model that has the deficit built into it, and then going through a series of steps that produce treatments at a fundamental level, <laughs> not downstream not trying to modify uh, 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 neurotransmission and thereby change genetic actions, but by modifying the genetic fault, creating a, a, a restoration in the function of relationships between brain cells. And that is a very exciting way forward that, uh, for the future that may help to take us out of the doldrums that we are a bit in at the moment. I think the inspiration behind our current lecture, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, would have been fascinated by the curious tale of psychotropic drugs. Not because it provided a character element to beef out his most famous creation, but for very personal reasons. His father, Charles Doyle, spent the last 12 years of his life in long-term psychiatric care most notably in three of Scotland's leading psychiatric institutions. With the publication of his, the only surviving uh, volume of diaries that he kept during that uh, uh, period, these were, this was published in 1977, the search was on for what was called the solution to Conan Doyle's last great mystery. Because there is no doubt that the, of the very traumatic effect his, his father's illness had on the young Arthur. The experts who viewed the diary suggested that the problem was alcoholism complicated by withdrawal fits from alcohol. But I must say that doesn't really hold water. Even in the temperance-obsessed 1880s and 90s, it would have been highly unusual to be incarcerated for 12 years constantly because of alcohol problems. When you look at the diary, there's one thing that strikes you immediately, what the experts called whimsy, but what to a psychiatrist has much more significance. A punning, a play on words, a play on ideas, like Madame and Dan Mad, A knows and no mistake, referring to British foreign policy in Egypt, that the herring caught in the Red Sea was not itself a red herring, and so on. Many, many examples throughout the book which speak very strongly of elation of mood. 
combined with the known fact that uh, uh, Charles Doyle throughout his life suffered fits of depression, this strongly points to a diagnosis of bipolar affective disorder and could certainly account for many years of long-term enforced incarceration. And wouldn't it be ironical that the young, one of the things the young Arthur might have learned about, perhaps as he sat where some of you are sitting today, would have been lithium salts, but nobody saw the angle. Psychopharmacology has come a long way in its short life. It would be only fair to say that it has raised many very difficult questions, questions of a medical, of an ethical, of a social nature that have yet to be resolved. But one thing it has done absolutely surely is move psychiatric illnesses where they always should have been, right at the heart of the spectrum of medical problems from which human, humankind can suffer. We may be a bit stuck, we may be a bit in, uh, in, in, in a tinny phase rather than a golden phase. The work of Professor Kynes and his colleagues offers a fascinating, exciting window into the way things may go in the future. But let's hope it doesn't take the outbreak of a third world war before we see some more angles. Ladies and gentlemen, I thank you for your attention. Production is brought to